Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. The presence of Christ. What does it mean to say Christ is present with us? This was the theme of Father Benjamin's homily last year on this day. This day being the Sunday in the octave of Corpus Christi. Corpus Christi, or the Feast of the Body of Christ, was instituted in the Western Roman Church in the 1200s as a feast day affirming the nature of the sacrament of the altar and offering special thanksgiving for this gift. It was acknowledged that Monday, Thursday would really be the best and most appropriate time to do this, and there is acknowledgement of and thanksgiving for the Eucharist on that day, but as it's within the broader context of Holy Week, this one element is quickly overshadowed by the drama of Jesus' arrest in the garden, his passion, and his crucifixion on Good Friday. So immediately after Paschal Tide, and after the ascension of Christ and the sending of his Holy Spirit, the Feast of Corpus Christi was very intentionally placed here, which, as our vicar general, Father Ed Hughes says, points to something in the nature of the sacrament. It is one of the primary ways Christ comes to us during this middle time, while we await his second and glorious coming. Therefore, the Eucharist is the theme of the feast very near the Ascension and Pentecost when Christ promises to be with us always and sends his comforter. After the Ascension, we certainly have the impression that Christ leaves us. Uh, as he's perceived by the disciples to increase in distance, both physically and metaphysically, as he not just ascends, but he ascends toward or into the heavens, understood to be a reality distinct from our cosmos. In the ascension, it's not like Jesus just went to space and then flew off somewhere. This is a transition to a different kind of realm, a different reality. And so he's also hidden from them when this happens and from us by a cloud, that feature of heavenly glory that uh, led the Hebrews in the desert, that Moses entered into on the mountain, and that filled the temple at its dedication in Jerusalem, and that Daniel witnessed as the vehicle of the ascending Son of Man in his vision. So Christ has definitely left us. He even said, I am leaving you, but I won't leave you comfortless. And so he sends the Spirit of God to dwell with us. But on the other hand, has Christ totally left us? Just how far away is this heaven that he inhabits now? Right after the account of Pentecost in the book of Acts, we have an interesting story about my patron, St. Stephen. As he is being killed with rocks by an angry crowd, a fate which I genuinely wonder is ever in the cards for me, he looks up and he sees Christ just right there with his own eyes. He sees Christ and he describes it to those around him. Christ is no longer sitting on his throne, but ever uh, willing to be humble. Christ our God now stands up to welcome his church's first martyr. And at that scene was standing another zealous man named Saul, who would also soon see Christ. And the sight of Christ and the voice of Christ speaking would actually knock Saul off of his horse. It's as if Christ is actually not that far away. You know, but these kinds of encounters with Christ are spectacular and miraculous and dramatic and tend to come, as we see, at moments of martyrdom, both 
literally in the immediate and in the unalterable transition to the path of martyrdom in the case of St. Paul's calling. Miracles and martyrdoms tend to bunch about the same areas of history, C.S. Lewis wrote, areas we have naturally no wish to frequent. But there is another class of miracles which are much more amiable to our daily life. We call these sacraments. Now, in the Eastern tradition, uh, the word more frequently is mysteries, and this is an old uh, word to use for this reality in which spiritual grace, spiritual reality is communicated to us via physical things. Now, this is not something that the Christian church or the Orthodox or even the Catholic church invented. This is not even something that is brand new in the New Testament. This is something that has been the case since the foundation of creation. Um, in the book of Genesis, of course, we see that a fruit on a tree is able to um, change the, the nature and the reality of human beings who um, encounter it and eat it. Um, and it does that in a negative way because they did it with the wrong disposition. Um, that's an important principle to remember. <laughs> but we also have other examples of God using physical things throughout the whole narrative of the scriptures to work grace in people's lives. One uh, fun example that is there in, in the Old Testament, I like to point out as a, a great instance of this principle is when Naaman, who was a foreign soldier and sort of leader of men, um, came down with a skin disease. And he had a captured captive Hebrew girl as a slave in his household. And she said, I know a prophet back in where I come from who could definitely heal you from this. And he had tried all the other healers, all the other remedies in his own land. So he decides to take the word of this slave girl and he packs up this big caravan to go with him all the way to the foreign land of Israel. And he meets with God's prophet there who tells him, uh, yeah, God can heal you. Um, what you have to do is go down and dip in this uh, river over here seven times and your skin will be healed. And he's like, don't we have better rivers in my land? This is this dirty old river. And he, he didn't even come out and talk to me on his own. He sent his servant. I'm insulted. I'm not doing this. But his servant convinced him, you know, you traveled all this way. Why not try it? And what happens when Naaman goes and dips himself in the river? He becomes clean. Now, Naaman knew, you know what? There should be a more dignified way for this to happen. If, if I'm going to at least take the time to journey all the way to meet with the prophet of this God, he can at least like do some prayers, meet with me. But how does God choose to heal Naaman? By making him encounter water and dip in a ritual way seven times. And that's what affects the healing. Now, God uses nature like this all throughout the story of the scriptures. And this is sort of a, a, a mystery how God does this and why God does this. Why did God create a world in which he would use the physical to change us spiritually um, or physically? Why, why would God make a world like this? It's a good question. It's a question that um, I think a lot of um, non-sacramental Christians um, ask rightly, why would God do this? And the answer is that I think God made this world and he likes it. He created matter and he actually thinks it's good. And so he uses it frequently 
because he didn't just make it for us to exist in so that then we could learn some important things about him and die and become disembodied souls to spend forever with him. No, he made creation. He made the, the cosmos as we see it, and he will redeem that cosmos. So he's interested in this world and its physicality. And so he works things through it. So how he does this, why exactly he does this, is a bit of a mystery. That's why we call these things mysteries sometimes. But we also have a word in the Western uh, church that comes from a Latin word which um, describes sort of a vow that a soldier would take that changed his reality and, and made him uh, a true soldier. And this was um, a word called uh, sacramentum, and it became associated with these mysteries. And the, the word sacrament kind of has more of a sense of the institutionalized nature of certain mysteries, certain ways that God works among nature to affect us. And so these instituted mysteries that we call sacraments are things like baptism, the introductory sacrament into the church. Why does God bring us into his holy family by simulated drowning? <laughs> Why does he have to use water to do that? Don't know, because it's fitting. He likes the idea of that. And so that's what Jesus gives us to do. Baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then, how does he seal the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Well, he tells us to use oil to do this. We see this in the New Testament. And the laying on of hands by a, an instituted minister of the church. So we have these sacraments that do things for us, bring us into the church. Um, St. James tells us if someone is sick, send the priest over and have him anoint the sick with oil. Why? Well, because oil is a symbol of the richness of God's blessing, and that's a good vehicle to communicate the healing of God on this person. So we do these things in the church, but there's one sacrament that is at the heart and life of our um, Christian walk in this world. And that sacrament is the sacrament, what we call the sacrament of the altar, the Holy Eucharist. Eucharist is a word that means in Greek, thanksgiving. And the reason we call it Eucharist is because we only do this sacrament in the context of a whole service of giving thanks. And now this service is so rich. And I mean, we could have, and we have had whole classes on this, but we could have a year-long study on what the Mass is and what it accomplishes. But here, in a nutshell, is what it accomplishes. And I want us to, if we don't take anything else with us, I want us to understand what we do on Sundays and every, every time we come and have the Mass. What we are doing is coming into the presence of God. We are hearing scriptures, we're praying, but this is a preparatory thing to bring us to the altar. Now, what happens at the altar is during the offertory, the priest will take elements of bread and wine. These are things that uh, are both gifts of God in nature and have human workings. Okay, It's not wheat and grapes that we offer. It's bread, which is wheat that we've done stuff to as humans and made bread, and it's wine which is grapes that we as humans have done stuff to and made wine. So you see how the gifts themselves are a combination of God's grace and our work. So we take these two elements, bread and wine, and then we begin a prayer in which we 
offer ourselves, we take our hearts, our, our whole selves, our souls, and we place them on the altar with the gifts that we are offering of bread and wine. And when we do that, Christ takes our souls joined with the bread and wine, ourselves, which we are offering on the altar, and he puts himself into those offerings so that then they become the very presence of Christ. We call it his body and his blood because that is his nature, his substance, and his life. And then the priest takes those offerings, which are now Christ, joined with us, and he offers them to the Father as a way of saying, we, we can't offer anything good of our own, but look, Christ has joined himself with us now. And then what happens? The Father receives this offering, this gift, because it's his own son. <laughs> this, is, this is the offering that his son made on the cross once and for all, an offering of perfect obedience all the way to the point of death to rescue us. That moment is joined to our gifts on the altar every time we celebrate the Mass. We're not re-sacrificing Christ. That's not what's happening. We are representing Christ's one sacrifice that happened on Calvary on a certain day, in a certain year, in a certain place, and we're making that reality present here. And we're offering that to the Father who sees it and gives that offering back to us so that we can commune with it. I know that was complicated, but do you see what is going on? We offer ourselves with the gifts. Christ inhabits those gifts and turns them into himself, joining our souls with him. The priest then offers that to the Father who receives it and then gives it back to us so that we can receive Christ in our lives. That is the mystery of the Mass. That's what we do every Sunday and every feast day when we gather. So, how is it the case that Christ joins himself to bread and wine? This is the nature of the mystery, the sacrament. Christ, again, ever humble. He was humble enough to become a zygote in the womb of a Jewish girl. To grow and take his flesh from her. To be born. To be circumcised. To have blood drawn. To grow up knowing uh, what it's like to be on the run. To be a refugee. To hunger, I'm sure. To, to get by on very little. He learned, he grew in wisdom and stature. He submitted himself to the authority of his parents here on earth. And then he began a life of service that culminated in being put to death by those who he came to serve. That kind of humility, all right, the kind of humility that even after his ascension and glorification, he still stands up to greet his martyrs when they come to him. That kind of humility is the same humility that Jesus um, shows us when he allows his true, real presence to be joined with bread and wine. So when we offer these prayers and Jesus comes to uh, inhabit our gifts, these gifts become, they're no longer bread and wine, they are Christ under the appearance of bread and wine. 
Now this is so we aren't knocked off our horses like Paul. This is a gift to us. All right, this is not the kind of miraculous presence of Christ that absolutely floors us or that happens in the moment of our giving up our lives in service to him. This is a daily thing. This is the presence of Christ meeting us under a veil that we find as food. Christ comes to us as food. This is astounding, but this is our faith. This is what the church has always believed. I can, I can give you no um, short list of quotations from the early church fathers all the way through the early centuries of the church affirming this reality. This isn't something the church made up later. From the start, the church has acknowledged. Listen to the words from St. Paul in our, in our scriptures this morning. That Christ humbles himself enough to be food for us that we can actually eat. Now, what we do with that, of course, primarily is eat it because that's what he tells us to do. Take and eat. This is my body. Take and drink. This is my blood. But because we acknowledge that this is truly Christ, we also adore. St. Augustine said that not only is it not a sin to adore Christ in his sacrament of the altar, it's a sin not to adore him. To have Christ here present and then not to understand what that means and not to adore Christ is actually a sin. And this is why St. Paul tells us that when people encounter the sacrament without being properly disposed to it and understanding what's going on, not, not necessarily understanding um, because it's a mystery, but understanding that it's Christ and having the right kind of heart and disposition, that this can be a bad, bad thing for them. And so we adore Christ and we need to be trained in this. And one of the ways that our tradition has taught us and um, given us to train us to adore Christ is to put ourselves in his presence and practice adoring. And this is something we're going to do right after Mass today. We don't do this frequently after Mass. We are because uh, this is the Sunday in the octave of the Feast of Corpus Christi. So after Mass, we are going to have a chance to adore Christ in the sacrament and just take a moment in silence and kneel before him and acknowledge Christ is here in this sacrament, in the veil of bread and wine, and his presence is truly with us. And this can be a transformative experience for us if, again, we're disposed correctly. So this is the explanation of why we have this feast, why the sacrament is the center sacrament of our entire life as Christians, because it is the very presence of Christ, the same that Stephen saw, the same that affected St. Paul so powerfully. That presence is now veiled graciously so that we can encounter it as food. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.